0: I don't know if your heart was broken like mine, but one of the reasons why we ought to exist for something is there's no justice in the fact that a Singaporean or an Australian should hear the gospel a dozen, two dozen, three dozen times if 98% of Japan hasn't heard it once. We exist for this. And that's why we were talking all this year about how to live without shame for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 4. I want to give you fair warning. This is a difficult passage. One reason topical messages are easier is you can skip over the tough stuff. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and I'm going to read all the way through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Beginning in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And with great grace, it was all around them. Sorry, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, or Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, "'Whether you sold the land for so much?' And she said, "'Yes, for so much.' But Peter said to her, "'How is it that you have agreed together "'to test the Spirit of the Lord? "'Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband "'are at the door, and they will also carry you out.' Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead.' And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray together. Father God, when you had a hard word for your servant Job, you said, brace yourself like a man. Get ready for action. But Father, we confess to you, we're not that ready this afternoon. We're not that ready to hear a word that disagrees with our religious assumptions and our traditions of giving. We're not that ready for your thoughts because we are full of our own. So we invite you this afternoon in just these few moments that we have. Push back those things in our hearts that crowd you out. Take every rebellious thought captive. Transform us, not through the words of an imperfect preacher, but by the power of your perfect word. Do this for your name's sake, O oh God, and we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Last Sunday, if you were with us, you uh, will be reminded that the gospel empowered these new believers to boldly share their testimony, to boldly share the good news or the gospel. And we saw something rather ironic. They shared boldly except when opposition came. Then they shared more boldly. It was a condition of being transformed by this gospel. It had the power to create Holy Spirit boldness in these first Or in these early believers. And some of you may recall that Peter, who was called before the ruling council, was confronted by them to stop talking about this Jesus. In fact, they were astounded, remember the council, when they realized he was an uneducated commoner. Literally, he was an uneducated idiot. I'm not trying to be funny, because... The word that is translated uneducated for us in English is the word in Greek which means uneducated. But the word that is translated common is the Greek word idiomai. He was an educated idiot. In their view, education wouldn't help him. They had classified him already. That is why this boldness, this confidence that came out of him was so counterintuitive, For these ruling counselors. Because in their world, confidence came from education. In their worldview, confidence came from status or position. Confident people had education, had training, and had position in society. They were not illiterate fishermen. And yet, this boldness was specifically evidence ...of this unusual, powerful thing we call the gospel. And notice this. If you were three weeks ago with Pastor Ollie... ...as he preached for us this word... ...there was this one specific thing. A platform that provided authenticity... ...for these men who were sharing in the center... ...in the heart of the Jewish faith... ...about this good news of a Messiah and that thing we see right here in chapter thir- or sorry chapter 4 verse 13 when peter said to the council whether it is right in the sight of god to listen to you rather than to god you must judge but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard this phrase right here stands as a 2,000-year-old indictment of every comfortable and quiet believer who can't figure out what in the world to talk about. Because if you have seen something, you don't need training to talk about it. If you've heard something, you don't need coaching on how to deliver what you've heard. You just naturally share now, uh, I'm not sure if you know this or not, because I didn't put this on my resume when I applied for this role, but I've had special training. I'm assuming you have this in Singapore. It's called Lamaze class. Sherry and I took training in 1982. Now, do you know why we took training in 1982? Because she was pregnant with a baby we had never had before. If you have never experienced something, it's a good idea to get some training. Now, I'm not espousing Lamaze because, honestly, I'm a man, so I was a bit cynical of the whole thing. But, but we learned some important things like breathe in and breathe out. <laughs> right in the middle of that, the coach was saying, breathe in, breathe out. I was thinking, well, what if I make a mistake? Breathe in, in. I might do that. But more importantly, I learned how at some point in this pregnancy and delivery process, Sherry is going to say to me, massage me there, don't touch me, in the same sentence. That was good coaching for me. Now, why did I need that coaching? Because I'd never experienced the delivery of the baby. We never went back to Lama's class. Why? Because we'd experienced it. Now, now here's something fascinating about that Lama's class, though they teach you how to breathe, though they train the husbands to listen to all the things the wife might say in the middle of that delivery, where to put the hands and not put the hands, how not to faint when you see blood, all that important stuff that men need to know. They never once said to us, now after the baby's born, here's how you share that good news without offending anybody. First, don't share it with anybody who doesn't have children because they'll take it personally. Never heard that. And if I had, I wouldn't remember it because the joy of the experience just comes out. So the, so the question is, what am I talking about in the 21st century? Have I heard something? Have I experienced something? If I have seen something, I can't help but talk about it unless it's been a long time since I've experienced it, then I might need re-credentialing. You see, that's why last week we said the gospel is not an entry point. It is a grace for every day and every assignment in it. We need to go all the way into that bed of the gospel, not fall asleep on the edge. And now this week, we discover that not only does the gospel give us the power for boldness to share what we've seen and heard and experienced, but the Bible also empowers us, this is going to get awkward, to reject ownership. This is a fundamental concept of the Christian life. Christ empowers us not to be owners but to be stewards, to be stewards of every component of life. So let's first notice how those believers were empowered to reject ownership in verses 32 through 37. Now, when, Sherry, when I was teaching at the Baptist Seminary in Canada, Sherry was working at the Royal Bank. And at the bank, she met a, a wonderful young, in Canada we call it First Nations lady, meaning uh, American Indian in Canada is First Nations. Uh, Her husband was the chief of the Nakoda tribe. If you've studied American history, which I assume you have because it's exciting, Canadian history, boring, hardly anybody dies. We like consensus. We want everybody to like us. Anyway, it's the Sioux tribe. It's the tribe of Chief Sitting Bull who is the great-great-grandfather of this husband that Sherry's friend introduced us to. And, and he was a chief. And, you know, all of these chiefs of the Nakoda Nation, they, they have very colorful names like Chief Sitting Bull and, and his nephew who became chief after him, Chief Crazy Horse. That's an awesome name. And, and Chief Rain-in-my-face. I think at some point I just turned my back to the rain, but he was chief rain in the face. Now, now our friend, the chief of the Nakoda Nation, his name was a little less colorful. His name was Ernest. <laughs> but, but Ernest told me some fascinating things that, that because of my heritage, I, I never learned. And one of the things he told me was the personal offense felt by his great-great-grandfather, Chief Sitting Bull, the first time he saw the fences of the white man. Because that's something about my ancestors, that we've exported all over the world. First, we came with the flags of our nations. Then we built our fences, which became walls, which became armed fortresses. And Chief Ernest of the Dakota Nation said, my grandfather looked at the first fence, which was a railroad, and he said this, how can a man own the land any more than he can own the air or the water? Man belongs to the earth, not the earth to man. How amazing that the tribal peoples were so unprepared for my people because they had no concept of personal ownership. Well, they had concept of personal ownership, but for them, the land belonged to the living and the dead and the not yet born, not to a specific group of people who were there, not because a specific people had advanced weapons technology. I don't know what you've heard about warfare or religion. It's not true. Wars happen today and in history for land, for territory. It is always about that. And this need to own is a sign of human rebellion against the God who owns all things. That's why a man who had a crown on his head and yet was called a man after God's own heart wrote these words in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its peoples belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation and the sea's and built it upon the ocean depths. Suddenly, we realize why health and wealth gospel is so popular and also heresy. It's popular because it appeals to my desire to own stuff. It affirms my desire to want your stuff. And it's heresy because it makes God my servant who is fully occupied, providing me with stuff. It teaches me to pray the prayers of a heretic. Oh God, if you give me this, I'll tithe on it. I'll invest my faith in it with the expectation that you'll return to me. It is rebellion against the king of all things. And when the Holy Spirit came and gifted us with repentance, he empowered us to share good news with boldness, and he empowered us to reject ownership. Now, notice this in verse 32. The full number of those who believed... We're of one heart and one soul. That's the ESV. Every believer was absolutely unified. And here is the first evidence of lordship. Literally, it's not everyone was unified heart and soul, but everyone, every believer was unified heart and mind. The Greek word, cardia. You don't want to have a cardiac event, right, Jonathan? And psyche. They were unified heart and mind. That is nothing to do with humanity. When humanity gets together, we naturally divide and then subdivide. We gather based upon personal affinities. If we look alike, smell alike, speak the same language, we gather together. Then we set up fences. Then we gather armies to defend the fences. Then we have nations. Then we need the United Nations. And the United Nations is a net because there's no spirit of God in the United Nations to draw us together. But when God came, All of these people groups, I counted 68 in Acts 2, were suddenly unified in heart and mind. Why? He took my heart of stone and replaced it with his heart of flesh. Why? His mind, the mind of Christ, was what everyone sought. And here's the outcome. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. In other words, everything they had, they held with open hands and fingers. God gave me this to be steward of this, to bless his name. And verse 33 through 37 tells us the outcome of that unity. There was not a needy person among them. For as many who were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph came, who was also called Barnabas. He was a Cypriot from Cyprus. He sold the field, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed. Now, there is a danger of interpreting this first century circumstance according to 21st century worldview. Because I assure you that there was not this huge mountain of cash Piling up at the apostles' feet. Why? Because in the first century, personal ownership of land was extraordinarily rare. In fact, land ownership is a fairly recent thing. Just the past 200 years. In fact, even today, it's not that much of a thing. Can I be honest? Um, Land ownership communicates freedom. Freedom to do whatever you want on that land. And so, even in the heart of personal freedom, autonomy and independence, even in America, do you know that 75% of all land is owned by only 25% of Americans? Now, now, this is not about America, because let me talk about my people. 80% of the land in the UK is owned by 20% of the Brits. That means 20% of the people... ...of the United Kingdom could evict everybody else. Land ownership is a recent development. In the first century, it wasn't like every single church member sold all their property and piled the money up. There was a few extraordinarily rich people. And by the way, they usually paid a price. Because if you owned land in the first century, your name was generally Caesar... So how did anybody get land if you were a soldier and you were not getting paid to put your life on the line daily to expand Caesar's kingdom? When you survived, that was your reward. You got some land. Everyone who had land, it cost him dearly. And we just happen to know the name of one of those was Joseph, called Barnabas the encourager. He had some land. He sold it and laid the cash out there. Use it to bless those who do not have much. The problem was, not everybody had land. But worse than that, some had land and wanted the status that Barnabas got. You see, the outcome of that generosity, the outcome of being a steward was need became scarce, right? That's the irony. The outcome was was positive. The the power in in the apostles became even more obvious, and, and grace was even more evident. Why grace? Grace because not a one of them was there because of their personal merit, The power was not there because Peter was somehow practicing his power moves in a homiletics class that had sprung up at a first century seminary. Power came by the grace of God. It was lavished upon common people, uneducated idiots. That was why it was so extraordinary. But Acts 5 tells us that the cracks began to show almost immediately. Because in verses 1 through 6, we're introduced to a couple who was yet bound by the deception of ownership. And we see this Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, they are right away. Introduced in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with, with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge. Now, Here's a characteristic of owners. People who are owners have a particular view about every single relationship. Every relationship becomes transactional. So when you're at a new school, you're making friends. Why? What can I get out of these people? Make friends with the unpopular kids. You might get lunch money. Or was that just me? Okay, that was oversharing. You know, make, make friends with the popular kids. It elevates your status. Even marriage becomes less about the glory of God and how it benefits the spouses. See, when you're an owner, Every relationship is transactional. And in the wording of verse chapter 1, it was clear that Ananias and Sapphira, they were in a partnership. They were doing business. They were transacting business, exchanging part of the proceeds for greater influence in the church. You see, an owner always asks, how is this going to benefit me? A steward asks, how is this going to benefit God's glory? An owner will come to the pastor's office. It's happened to me many times. And say, pastor, so um, this whole tithing thing, um, is it before tax or after tax? And it's just 10%, right? It's I mean, why do they tithings and offerings? It must be all in the, inside the 10%. You see, an owner will always ask, How much of my money do I have to give to God? A steward will always ask, How much of God's money am I going to keep? It's a completely different perspective. Acknowledging that everything I have has been lent to me. By the God who owns all of creation. And I'm to hold that with open hands. That's why when I get my pocket picked like happened to me in China, it's not a great disaster. Ooh, that guy just stole God's money. And God's driver's license. Looks a whole lot like me in that picture. (laughs) You you see, when you believe I just exist as a conduit for God's grace, everything that comes to me is by His grace. And His intention is that it not stop here. Even the gospel... That's why the whole world resents Christians who gather in holy circles and celebrate Jesus while the whole world is starving spiritually and physically. Are, are, are you you Christians not paying attention? That's what a homeless person asked me in Vancouver. Your building's so nice? You not see I'm sleeping in your stairwell? Stewards ask God, this blessing is undeserving. How now shall I bless others through it? Here's what's fascinating. Now, um, I, I know some of you immediately felt your spine begin to stiffen, right, a little bit. when The pastor started talking about, you know, giving. Because you're, you're waiting for the shoe to drop, for the pastor to start talking about, now we only have so much more to give until we don't have to deal with pastor being down here, but we'll have our own building. We need to give more. You're waiting for that, right? And, and your defense mechanisms have stiffened and, and strengthened, and some of you are saying, oh, Canada sent us a socialist. <laughs> I'm just saying, the sin was not that they didn't give away everything. The the sin was that they lied about it. You see, Peter said, you know, before it sold, wasn't it all yours? And and when you did sell it, didn't you have all the proceeds yourself? Why would you attempt to lie to God? How how is it that the evil one filled you? By the way, that clearly says he is not a transformed believer. Just, just check it out in Scripture. When the demons were confronted with the person of Jesus Christ, they only had three options. First, they fell down in worship. Second, they begged for mercy. And third, they ran off. Here, here's what Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That word, lie, is Fascinating. Because it comes from the Greek word, which now we've transliterated as an English prefix. The word is pseudo. So, pseudo means false or fake, right? A pseudonym is a fake name. Pseudo news is... Uh, Pseudo pregnancy means you've, you've gained a little bit of weight. A pseudo-scorpion, like, this is awesome. What church are you seeing a pseudo-scorpion? is actually a spider. And, and, by the way, very helpful in your home. Eats mites, flies, mosquitoes. Don't kill it. Here's the sin. Ananias and Saphir, they were pseudo-followers. They were posers. They were fake Christians. Walking around in public, praising Jesus' name. Pushing the reputation that Christians are just like them. They were owners, posing as stewards. Now now let me wrap this up with the consequences, sad consequences of stewardship. Verses 5-10. Now... Now, you know, Ananias heard these words, fell down. His soul left him. He breathed it out. And young young men came and picked him up. In those days, there was no embalming for normal people. There was no refrigeration. They had to bury that body right away. A few hours later, Sapphira came in. As if, you know, you can imagine Peter still standing there in front of that small gathering of money. Sapphira walks in. Peter says, Would you sell that for so much? She said, "Yes, yeah, so much. She fell down dead. Now, now here's the sad consequence of this. Young men came in just from bearing her husband. They carried her out as well. And they, Scripture says, laid her beside her husband. And the fascinating thing about this is in the construct of the Greek sentence. They do not lay them shoulder to shoulder, eyes looking up to heaven for the glory of a Savior. They lay them each on their shoulders, face to face, eye to eye. That's the deception of ownership. Everything's transactional, exchanging a Savior for each other. And here's the thing. Many of us, are owners, don't despair. Because if you're sitting here and you have this fear, oh, Lord God, am I Ananias? That's a good place to be. It's those who have the moral outrage. That's the spirit of Ananias. You are a generous church because several of you know how I drive, still let me your car. Clearly your view is it belongs to the Lord. The pastor's a crazy man, but it's the Lord's car. Here is what is so sad. If Ananias and Sapphira, if they had lived another 50 years, somebody else would have owned their stuff. That's, that's a deception of ownership. This hole was filled up with two bodies. They didn't throw the money in with them. And most of us, in 50 years, we won't own anything. Right? Somebody else will own every single thing I have. Because ownership is not eternal. Eternal. Only God himself is. He's given us this moment to be stewards of every good thing. He's a generous God. And what are stewards called upon for? What but faithfulness. Faithfulness. And that's why you remember in in, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 12, Jesus was telling the story of a rich man who seemed to be extraordinarily wealthy because he did have some land. Perhaps he gave some sons to Caesar, but he had some, some land, and his land was so profitable, he was confused. What do I do now? Oh, self, he says. Self is transactional. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barn and I'll build bigger barns and then I'll live the rest of my life in comfort. And then in verse 20, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required and all the things you have prepared, whose will they be now? I told you this was a hard word. But have you noticed the outcome? Twice the same outcome. Sapphira dies. Ananias dies. The outcome is exactly the same. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Word went beyond the church. Remember this word fear. It's really important. Remember the Greek word Phobia. It doesn't just mean fear. It means, you know, phobia was the God of the fear of gods. It was a fear that God is here. He's planted himself down in our midst. That awesome creator God who made all things and owns all things. He's here. He's in our city. That empowered the gospel Even more. You see, whether I decide to be a steward or an owner, God's glory will be magnified. Because he's sovereign. I can act like I'm sovereign by counting the money I have in my bank account, by counting the number of properties I own, but he is sovereign. has called and empowered me and every one of us to be stewards not only of everything but even of this grace. And my prayer for us, Grace Baptist Church, is that we will be overflowing with this grace so that it will flow out on the hearts and lives of those who know not of it. This past Wednesday, we celebrated Ash Wednesday. Well, we didn't because we're afraid of celebrating anything Catholics celebrate, right? For thousands of years, over a thousand. Since a bishop. In the year 165, Christians aligned their hearts in what has now been called Lenten. By the way, that comes from an old English word, lengthen or spring. As the days got longer, believers began to celebrate every day this God who thought not Godness, something to be clung to, but emptied himself, became a steward of grace. And so traditionally, Christians all around the world during 40 days of Lent, from last Wednesday leading all the way up to Good Friday, will decide, I'm going to give something up. Christ gave up heaven. And I'm going to be like him. I'm asking you to give up ownership to decide today I I am going to be a steward of his grace I'm going to be boldly talking about all that he has done in my life everything he's given me steward the grace that came to me be faithful in it I'm going to steward the words that form in my heart and mind And they're going to be words that Christ himself would speak. Words of life. Not words that would tear down. Not words that would criticize and break up. But words that would build up and bring life. I'm going to be a steward even of words. And I'm going to be a steward of my my time and my gifts. I know this is a 21st century nation and a 21st century city. We have no time for anything except for what we want to do. I, I want to be a steward this Lent of my time and my gifts. Use them in a way that will be for kingdom profit, for God's glory, and not for Ian's. Even I will steward my vote. I'm pretty sure come September, there's going to be parliamentary elections right and my experience of growing up Baptist is whether the vote is in the church or in the nation we go to the polls with the conviction that this vote belongs to me and I'm going to cast it according to my convictions and I'm going to let it be a sign of my dissent or my approval but friend even that vote belongs to God And my prayer is that come September, when you consider these parliamentary elections, you will kneel down with the Lord of creation. Father, not my will, but your will be done. How would you want this vote cast? Because he is the owner, not just of every vote, but every heartbeat. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. Uh, Father God, as we close our time together, uh, we, we don't want to leave this place content. We want a bit of godly discontent in us. We don't want to be content with religion if there is a dynamic, powerful relationship available to us with the owner of all things. We don't want to be content with ownership if the joy is in being a faithful steward of all that you have given us. So empower us for this. During these 40 days, as we walk in a Jesus direction, may your pleasure be upon us. For your glory, for your namesake, Rise up and be great in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand together?